you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 11. We left off last week with the Ammonites wreaking havoc on the Israelites, the Israelites repenting of their idolatry and the Lord beginning to work deliverance for them. In Judges 11, we're told of the deliverer whom the Lord raised up for them. So let's look first to the first 11 verses, Judges 11, the first 11 verses, and then we'll continue on from there. The historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And, Gideon's, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. It came about after a while that the son of sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now we are told here in the opening verses of Judges 11 about the rise of this man, Jephthah. His beginnings were humble enough. He's the son of a harlot, despised by his brothers and driven away from his home. But it was those very circumstances which prepared him for what he was to do in the future. Sometimes hard times have a way of doing that. They prepare us for what lies ahead and what the Lord has in store for us, though we do not know it at the time. And so in Jephthah's case, he goes over to the land of Tob, or the area of Tob, which is probably about 10 miles east of Ramoth-Gilead, seemingly east of the far eastern border of Israelite territory on the east side of the Jordan. So if you think of, if you have a map of ancient Israel in your mind and you've got the Jordan River and the main allotment on the west side of the Jordan between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, then on the east side you have the area that was allotted to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and to some of the tribe of Manasseh. Kind of just east of that probably is this area of Tob to which Jephthah goes and lives after he is driven out. And there in Tob, he becomes the leader of a group of young toughs who were up to no good. And they seem to have had raiding as their occupation. Seems reasonable to suppose they were probably raiding against the Ammonites who were, who were themselves the invaders of Israel. 
And it was apparently these circumstances that led Jephthah to be recognized as a valiant warrior. That's the description of him with which the chapter opens up there in verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. And that was the opinion of the men of Gilead. When they get in trouble and the Ammonites are attacking them, the men of Gilead understand that Jephthah is a valiant warrior. As, uh, as verses 5 and 6 seem to indicate, they understand uh, that this man is a fighter and they want him on their side leading the fight for them. And in offering him the job, Jephthah then reminds them the men of Gilead, of what they had already done to him. And he asks them why he wants them to, why they want him to save them now. It's almost as if he said, really? You treat me that way? And now when you're in trouble, you want me to, you want me to come back? You come knocking on my door after, after kicking me out and driving me away? And they replied by saying in so many words, yeah, that's why we're here. We want you to lead us in battle and to be head over the people of Gilead. Come help us. And they called the Lord to witness that Jephthah would be their head, their leader, if the Lord delivered them from the sons of Ammon. And some writers have pointed out the parallelisms that exist between the way in which Gilead treated Jephthah with the way that the nation of Israel had treated the Lord, as we saw back at the end of chapter 10. So the men of Gilead pushed Jephthah out by their hostility, just like Israel had pushed the Lord out by their idolatry. In their trouble, the men of Gilead turned to Jephthah for help. And in their trouble, the men of Israel had turned to the Lord for help. There at the end of chapter 10. And both the Lord and Jephthah offered some pushback when their help was sought. Both the Israelites and the Gileadites persisted in saying, Yes, we desperately want help. The Lord was merciful and delivered Israel. And the way that was done was by raising up Jephthah and Jephthah then returning to help the Gileadites. And so now let's look ahead to verses 12 through 28 as the narrative unfolds. We'll pick up reading in verse 12. Now Jephthah was sent, uh, excuse me, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt from the Arnon as far as the the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of the sons... Excuse me, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh... Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was at the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel 
to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our God, has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in the Arower and in its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord judge, the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Now, in this section, we see how Jephthah went about seeking to deliver the Israelites. He begins by sending these messengers to ask the king of the sons of Ammon why he is doing what he is doing to the Israelites. Why are you making war against us? The answer comes back, Israel stole our land. And Jephthah replies by making a long historical argument. He's recounting the history of the book of Numbers, how the Israelites dealt faithfully with the inhabitants on the east side of the Jordan as they sought entrance into the promised land. They asked permission to go through Edom, but were refused. The same thing happened in dealing with the king of Moab. And despite being rebuffed by both Edom and Moab, the Israelites were respectful, and they stayed out of those territories. When they asked permission from Sihon, the king of the Amorites, that's when things got ugly. And Sihon sends out troops to fight. The Lord gave Sihon and his army into the hands of the Israelites. Therefore, he gave their land, their territory, into the Israelites' possession as well. In other words, the argument that Jephthah is making is that this was not your land. This was not historically the land of the sons of Ammon. It was not taken from you all. On the contrary, it belonged to Israel for 300 years after we defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Why had the sons of Ammon done nothing for three centuries to take back the land? Verse 27 kind of sums up the position of Israel and of Jephthah, where he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. He proclaims his innocence and the sinfulness of Ammon and then commits the case to the Lord to be the judge. Now there are a couple of things worthy of our notice here. For one, notice the power of the truth. There is great strength in knowing the truth and in standing for the truth. Jephthah was well-versed in the history of Israel and had a knowledge of the facts of the case, and so he was able to stand up against the lies of the sons of Ammon. When the king of Ammon said something false, namely, hey, you guys stole our land, that's why we're fighting you, Jephthah was able to answer him according to the truth of the case. No, we did not steal your land, this was not yours. And he gives a historically accurate answer to the charge. Now, we live in times where people sometimes act 
as if facts and truth don't matter. People like to play fast and loose with the truth and like to try to pull the wool over the eyes of others if they can. And there are a couple of things to be said in regard to that. Number one, as Christians, we can't do that ourselves. We can't play fast and loose with facts. We can't try to pull the wool over people's eyes. And secondly, we need to know the truth so that we are not led astray in the fog. Truth and facts do matter. When I was a student working on the, uh, the grounds crew when I was in college, my supervisor one time said, a fact is a fact. You can't deny a fact. Now, obviously, we know people do try to deny facts, but they shouldn't be denied. They should be uh, articulated, and we should stand for them. Now, obviously, one single person can't know everything. We have limited time and opportunity to study and learn, so we can't know everything. But we should labor to know the facts of those matters that concern us. If we're trying to uh, engage in a particular issue, then we should, uh, we should try to do our homework and try to labor to know the facts of the case and not shy away from those facts. And as we seek to learn the truth concerning those things which we're involved with, we need to make sure that we get the facts of the case straight. There was a great story about the English churchman J.W. Bergen when he was a student, I think it was at, uh, at Oxford. He once posed the question to this, this old scholar uh, who I think was president of one of, the, one of the colleges there at Oxford, and he, he asked him, he said, Every studious man in the course of a long and thoughtful life has had the occasion to experience the special value of some axiom or precept. He said, would you mind giving me the benefit of such a word of advice? So he's this young student, and he says, hey, every, every old scholar has some kind of axiom or, or saying that is, that is helpful. And uh, according to the way Bergen told the story, uh, Martin Joseph Routh said to him, I think, sir, since you care for the advice of an old man, sir, you will find it a good practice to always verify your references, sir. In other words... Do your homework. Make sure that your references are correct. You want to make sure that the information you get, the facts that you are attempting to gather, are actually factual, that they are not incorrect. You want to make sure that you're working with good information. Now, a second thing to observe is unfortunate, but we need to observe it nonetheless, is that even when we know the facts and when the truth is on our side, we can't automatically expect that it will win the argument of the day. The facts didn't seem to change the mind of the king of the sons of Ammon. And even when we find that to be the case, when we articulate the truth and articulate the facts and they get disregarded or rejected, nevertheless, this doesn't mean that knowing the facts is worthless. Knowing the facts of the case, even when they are rejected by others, can actually be helpful in that they serve to undergird us and help us know that we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing because we're actually standing for what is true and what is right. The truth is powerful and worth knowing and believing even when it is denied or rejected by others. And uh, allow the example of the king of the sons of Ammon just to, uh, just to serve as a warning to you that even though you may know the truth and articulate the truth and stand for it, doesn't mean that it's going to win the argument of the day. Now, as we all know, the really tricky part of the story is coming. So let's look on ahead to verses 29 through 40. 
Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aroer to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. As she was his one and only child, besides her he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said to her, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The victory, speak of that first, the victory which the Lord gave to Jephthah was very great, as seen in verses 32 and 33. But the victory itself is overshadowed by the sandwich around it, so to speak. The vow of Jephthah, verses 30 and 31, and then the result of the vow, verses 34 through 40. The vow was rash and ill-advised, and the fulfillment of it was obviously very distressing to Jephthah. But what exactly was the vow, and what exactly was the manner of its fulfillment? Let's look to the vow itself first, and then to the fulfillment of the vow in order to try to, to grapple with what's going on here. The vow, as he made it there in verses 30 and 31, he says to the Lord, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, as translated in our modern English versions, this looks, this looks pretty plain. What is worth noting, however, is that the conjunction in the vow, the and, in the phrase, it shall be the Lord's, and... I will offer it up as a burnt offering, could also be translated as or, in the sense of it shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. 
the old King James Version had actually a textual note that indicated that the conjunction could be or. And the difference between the two rendering gets at the nature of the vow itself. If we understand the conjunction as and, then the thrust of the vow appears to be that Jephthah will dedicate the first thing that comes out of his house to meet him by sacrificing it to the Lord. Now, on the other hand, if the conjunction is or, then this leaves the vow open to two possibilities. One, dedicating that one to the Lord, that first one that comes out, or sacrificing that one to the Lord as a burnt offering. Now, what of the fulfillment of the vow? Well, of course, in uh, verse 34, we find that the first one who came out of his house to meet him was his daughter, his only daughter. We see in verse 35, his sorrow and grief, knowing what was coming to her on account of the vow being kept. He tears his clothes. He says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. He's planning to keep the vow, even though he knows it will be painful to him. Now let's pay attention, though, in the text here to what is said and what is not said as we move forward. Verse 36, Jephthah's daughter affirms him in going ahead with the fulfillment of the vow. Verse 37, she asks his leave to give her two months to go to the mountains, weep with her companions because of her virginity. Verse 38, her father gives her permission, and she does so. And then let's read verses 39 and 40 again. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now let's just be clear on what is said and what is not said. From verse 34 on forward, the, uh, it's very clear that Jephthah intended to keep his vow, very clear that his daughter willingly submitted herself to, the fathers, to, to her father so that this vow could be kept. However, what is not so clear from verse 34 on forward is just what the fulfilling of this vow looked like. There's no mention of burnt offering from verse 34 on down to the end of the chapter. We nowhere read that he offered her as a sacrifice, that he took her life, that he killed her. What we read in verse 39 is that her father did according to the vow. The vow was kept. The odd thing, though, is that immediately after stating that he had fulfilled the vow, we find this statement that she had no relations with a man. In fact, her virginity is mentioned three times. In verse 37, where she asked permission to weep with her friends. Verse 38, which states that she did go and weep with her friends. And then verse 39, in which it is stated that she had no relations with a man. Now, her virginity obviously meant that she would not have children. In her case, in particular, it seems that her father's line would be at an end, right? She is Jephthah's only daughter, his only child. By extension, this means that she would not be able to take part in the ancestry of the Messiah. Now, childlessness is often a very heavy blow to women. And if this is the case in our culture as a cultural trend, then as a, as a cultural trend, this blow would have been even heavier among Old Testament Israelites as a general rule than it is among us. Just think, for instance, of the, the anguish of, of Rachel when she was childless. She says to Jacob, give me children or I die. Think of, of the sorrow of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Childlessness was, was a really big deal. Now, it's not to belittle childlessness in our own time, but it seems that as a cultural trend more broadly, 
it was a really big deal to the Israelites of old. And so the ambiguities in the text from verse 34 on to the end of the chapter give us two possibilities as to how this vow was fulfilled. Either that her life was taken and she was offered up as a burnt offering, or that some arrangement was made by which she was devoted to the Lord in some kind of life of perpetual virginity. Now, which of the two was it? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. Let me try to give you what, in my opinion, are some of the strongest arguments on either side of the question. In favor of dedication to the Lord by perpetual virginity is the fact that the conjunction in the vow in verse 31 can be translated either as and or as or. Technically, the wording does not require a burnt offering in order for the vow to be fulfilled. Secondly, the stress on the issue of the young woman's virginity seems odd, at least to my mind, if she was going to be put to death and offered as a burnt offering. And this is especially the case in verse 39, where after saying that Jephthah fulfilled the vow, we're not told that she was killed, or that she was offered up as a burnt offering, but we're told that she had no relations with a man. Now, that would go without saying if she was killed, but the writer doesn't say that she was killed. On the other side of things, the text certainly allows for her having been offered as a burnt offering. Again, if she had been offering as a burnt, offered as a burnt offering, she would have had no relations with a man. She would have died as a virgin. And so all of that concern about her virginity would have been valid if she had been offered up as a burnt offering. Either way, it would have likely meant that her father's line ended and that she was not participating in bringing in the Messiah. And also, and I think this is, this is significant, I think, is that from all that I've been able to see, this has been the historical view of the text, that she was, in fact, offered up as a burnt offering. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, from the first century, he said that's what, that's what happened. This, likewise, was the view of the, the Jewish Targum, which was essentially uh, an amplified Aramaic uh, translation and uh, light commentary on the text, uh, from the, from the first or second century, this view has been held widely uh, by Christians throughout church history. And at least from what I've been able to gather, it seems that it's not until you get to the Middle Ages where you have some Jewish rabbis uh, beginning to explain the passage as a reference to dedication to the Lord by perpetual virginity. And since then, some Christians have also followed that understanding of the text. And so I don't think the text absolutely requires us to believe that she was sacrificed as a burnt offering, but it certainly does allow for it. Again, the emphasis in the the latter verses falls on the young woman's virginity instead of her death, but that emphasis does not necessarily mean that she lived, doesn't mean that she escaped being sacrificed. And so by now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great, Neil. I was hoping to get some answers, and you're not planting your feet firmly and making a strong argument, making a strong case what a helpful sermon. Well, I'll take, I'll take ownership there. Maybe I'm not as helpful as you would have wanted me to be. But there are ambiguities here. And I think there are sometimes some matters on which a staunchly dogmatic position is, is ill-advised. Matthew Henry commented on this ambiguity, I think, helpfully. And I think, I'm not entirely sure, I think he came down on the side thinking that she probably was sacrificed as a burnt offering. But he said this. He said, And probably the reason why it is left dubious by the inspired penman 
whether he sacrificed her or no, was that those who did afterwards offered their children. In other words, those who afterwards sacrificed their children as Israelite history went on, that they might not take any encouragement from this instant. Concerning this and some other passages in the sacred history, which learned men are in the dark, divided, and in doubt about, we need not much perplex ourselves. What is necessary to our salvation, thanks be to God, is plain enough. And although there are some historical ambiguities here in the text, and I think, I think the text leaves it a little, bit, a little bit open as to what actually went down, I think helpfully the same fundamental lessons to learn here are applicable either way that you understand the text. If you think Jephthah actually sacrificed her as a burnt offering, the same lessons we can glean from that we can glean from if Jephthah dedicated her to a life of perpetual virginity. Either way you understand the text, Jephthah made a rash and ill-advised vow. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him in verse 29, thus anointing him for the task that lay ahead. There's no need for him to make this promise to the Lord as if it would somehow gain the Lord's favor in helping him to defeat the sons of Ammon. shouldn't have been making this rash promise to the Lord. There's no need for that. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. Catch this. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And so there's no obligation on you to make a vow, so be cautious about this. Obviously, if the fulfillment of the vow is sinful in itself, then the vow must not be paid because two wrongs don't make a right. right? We talked about that a little bit this morning with Salvianus saying that, uh, that these Christians were, were make, or these professing Christians were making vows saying uh, in, in Christ's name that they were going to kill or rob or something like that. This is foolish. If you make a vow like that, you don't keep it. Two wrongs don't make a right. But it's better not to make any kind of vow like that in the first place. So be careful with your words. Better to not make promises to God at all than to make promises that are ill-advised. And the second thing that is, is worthy of notice here, and I had not, uh, had not thought much about this ever until studying the chapter this week and, and uh, reading some commentaries on this, but a second thing to, that's worthy of our notice here is the cheerfulness and the resolve of Jephthah's daughter. Let's look back at her words there in verse 36. So uh, Jephthah has already said he's going to be keeping this vow. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. So far from, from shrinking back and begging that this might not be done to her, this young woman willingly received the fulfillment of the vow. As John Gill expressed it, such was her public spirit and the grateful sense that she had of the divine goodness in giving victory over Israel's enemies and delivering them from them with vengeance on them. She cared not what was done to her. Yea, she desired that what was vowed might be performed. Now, she was obviously saddened by the prospects of never marrying, never bearing children, but in our terms, we could say she was willing to take one for the team, however that played out in practical terms. Though she was not completely forgetful of herself, nevertheless, she had a self-sacrificial spirit, a submissive spirit, 
a spirit that valued integrity. She says to her father, you have given your word. And she understands that a vow is a serious thing. And uh, unfortunately, uh, in her case, even though uh, the vow was not a good vow, nevertheless, she, she had a strong sense of integrity. She had also a spirit that valued the well-being of her people. She was rejoicing in this victory over their enemies, that now the Israelites are free from being under the heel of the sons of Ammon. However ill-advised the vow and execution may have been, this young woman was thankful that the Lord had given her father victory and that by that victory he had delivered the Israelites from their enemies. What is this but that same spirit of humility and mind that is commended to us by Paul in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This young woman was willing to take one for the team, was willing to take one for the well-being of God's people, even if that taking one for the team was ill-advised and misguided. Now, how about you and how about me? Are we willing to take one for the team for the well-being of the people of God? Are we willing to set aside our own desires and our own aspirations to serve the glory of God and to serve for the furtherance of the gospel? Jephthah's daughter is well worthy of commemoration, not just for the fact that she was sacrificed in, in some way, either by death or by perpetual virginity. She is worthy of commemoration for her attitude. She is worthy not only of commemoration, but even of imitation, in that uh, she has before her the well-being of the people of God, and she rejoices in that, even if it means something detrimental is coming to her. And as for, for Jephthah, he is a shadow of a greater deliverer. Jephthah, of course, is a pale and imperfect shadow. We've seen his shortcoming here in this particular instance, but nevertheless, he does foreshadow our Lord Jesus Christ. He's listed in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11 by name, Hebrews 11.32. He was a deliverer whom God raised up. Like Jesus, his own did not receive him, at least early on. Like Jesus, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, he delivered his people from their oppressors. Now, unlike Jesus, this man was the son of a harlot. Our Lord was the son of a pure virgin. Unlike Jesus, he was prone to sin and ignorance and spiritual weakness. Christ was him who knew no sin. And unlike Jesus, the deliverance which Jephthah uh, wrought for his people was earthly and temporary. The, de the deliverance which Christ has worked for his people is one which, though worked out in time and on earth, is of eternal and celestial consequence for us. Christ has delivered us from our damning sins and from the grasp and the cruelty of Satan. And so how much more then, seeing that we're the recipients of this greater deliverance by Christ, how much more should we be characterized by that public spirit, the desiring of the well-being of the people of God, and the self-sacrificing demeanor, demeanor of Jephthah's celebrated daughter. If Jephthah's daughter could, could rejoice in this earthly and temporal and temporary deliverance and be willing to say, I'm willing to be sacrificed, whatever that sacrifice was, 
how much more should we be willing to lay our lives on the line for the glory of Christ and the well-being of God's people, knowing that our Lord Christ is not going to make a tragic, foolish vow like this. Christ never misuses or abuses his people in the least. Christ is faithful. Christ only has our good in mind. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness. And Lord, we ask that you would would help us to trust you when we come to portions of your word that are hard for us to understand. We, uh, we pray that you would help us to understand as much as you have revealed. And uh, when we get to the, the edge of what you have revealed, let us, uh, let us trust you uh, for uh, the things which are not revealed. And Father, we thank you that, uh, that Christ is a great deliverer for us. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would have attitudes like that commended by Paul in Philippians 2, that we would look out for the interests of others and not for ourselves. Lord, we know that we are all inclined to to selfishness and seeking our own good and our own glory. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to lay those things down for the glory of Christ and the glory uh, and the greatness of this uh, redemption that is ours in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.